Hello and welcome to episode 382 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we're coming to you in separate locations this week. I, I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time WNBA champion, Storm. And I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl forty-eight champion, Seattle Seahawks. The Seahawks, who have once again, again reclaimed the hammer. There we on this go. Podcast. Well, it's you know it's going back and forth every week, and really it should be UW football, but uh, spiritually the Seahawks. But wait, uh, wait, it's the Daryl Jackson edition. Indeed, it is the DJ episode. Uh, we have a lot to get to, including me attending both the UW football and Seahawks wins in the state of Michigan go. last weekend, as well as my pizza tour of the Midwest. Okay. But you did go to like the two pizza places. You I, you went to I, the two pizza cities outside of the East Coast in the country. Oh, wow. St. Louis is so upset by this disrespect. St. Louis? <laughs> yeah. You don't know about St. Louis style pizza. That's a thing, isn't it? That's not like a made up thing like Spokane. It was or was it Salt Lake City or Spokane where they like made up and it had like fry sauce on it? Okay. That was it just it was just designed to troll people. I I do not actually think St. Louis is on par with Detroit and Chicago as a pizza city. That was a joke. Let's start this week though with a return to our search for Seattle's best IPA, which this week has a leading contender that also may technically not be eligible. And that is from our friends at Cloudburst Brewing, the Cosmic Lust IPA, which you'll recall we discussed at length back when we had the Elysian Space Dust IPA, because Cosmic Lust is made by the brewers who created Space Dust before Elysian was sold to Anheuser-Busch InBev, and now are doing it at Cloudburst independently but irregularly, it's been a while since Cosmic Lust was available. So as soon as I saw on Instagram that they had brewed a batch, I made sure to pick it up as a comparison. I don't know if this counts as like regularly available in our search for Seattle's Best IPA, but it is the flagship, certainly, for Cloudburst. Uh, their description, oh, what Dusty once was. He was vibrant. He was juicy. He was wow. rough around the edges with a little bite and yet still, still balanced and approachable. Everybody loved him, and even more do today. Sure, he still looks the same, but his old friends know that he's changed. He's bigger now, a little less interesting, dull and dumbed down. He wow. says money and opportunity haven't changed him. Okay, but to those who remember what once was, this lusts for you. Okay. Uh, with Chinook, Citra, Amarillo, and Galaxy Hops, and brewed in Seattle by an adamantly small, forever independent brewery that former Illusion employees work at. Uh-huh, Yes. So there you Adam- go. Adamantly small, forever independent. I love it. <laughs> the same could be said of the Pelton cast. The same kind of could be said about the Pelton cast. Thank you. I was just talking this week about how we don't like, we aggressively do not want the most famous guest possible on the podcast. <laughs> I, that's untrue. I've, I don't know who the most famous guest who would come on the Pelton cast to be relevant to the Pelton cast is. I we mean, are aggr- we we've already had Sue Bird, and we called it a day, good sir. Good sir, <laughs> we were just like done. I'm just saying, like if Pearl Jam was like, "Hey, can we come on the podcast?" I'm not going to say no to that. All of Pearl Jam, just <laughs> Pearl Jam. <laughs> yeah. That's what you came up with with the entire band. I don't know. 
if Jeff Ament wants to come on. I mean, yeah, that's the most logical fit for the Seattle sports podcast. I agree. Uh, ben Gibbard. Well, we're we're aggressively small, adamantly small here on the Pelton cast. Indeed we are. But you know what isn't adamantly small this week? Our list of toasts. Oh, yes. Starting with congratulations to Michael Penix Jr., named National Offensive Player of the Week by the Walter Camp Foundation for his role in the Huskies, posting their second most yards ever in school history in the win at Michigan State. Penix Predictably, also one of several Huskies honored by the Pac-12. He was Offensive Player of the Week. Zion Tupuola Fatui was Defensive Lineman of the Week after forcing a fumble that was not called a fumble. That was really strange. Very strange. Can we can we just pause for one second on that because it didn't matter to the game. I I had like an inkling. I was like, I don't know if this is going to matter. Could the Huskies have challenged that play and just decided not to? They could have. I don't think it would have done much good because is always in college football. The people who the same person who decides whether to stop the play to review it also determines whether the call is correct. They are both judge and jury in that sense. But so the challenging the almost never makes most sense. Most obvious fumble on a situation like that. And There's... you know, usually what you do instead of challenging is you take a timeout to give them more time to look at it. And Michigan State took the timeout and they still didn't want to stop playing. It just it truly baffling. That was very strange. I still think the Huskies should have done it just to be like. Like, I understand what you're saying about the same person is looking at it who would have also reviewed it, but just to, like, really, like, rub the point home at the very least. Apparently, it was Pac-12 refs working the game. Yes, and and apparently the Pac-12 should die. Oh, God, what happened? <laughs> the next time the Huskies Michigan, visit Michigan State, it will be Big Ten refs working it, it, so that's, Pac- that's good news. Pac-12 refs really showed us why. <laughs> they they always they every week week in and week out you can count on that uh lastly center parker brailsford was freshman of the week there we go week. the so. the broadcasters so you were at this game you didn't hear this on peacock but uh the broadcasters had not figured that, out the, yeah. the nickname how you pronounce it no peacock? that's how i just pronounced it right now i was looking oh. at there's like a a tweet that somebody shares with the ratings after each week and I, I always am like where are the huskies colorado is always number one and uh I, of course they were not on there because they were on peacock in a game that was much better than almost any other game around the country last weekend well, it was better on paper i don't know if it actually well, was better it, it, the matchup was better yes. there were not that many premier matchups around college football next up congrats to mariners pitchers who set a franchise record with wow. their 16th shutout of the season, Monday in Oakland. Somehow, while not pitching well the entire season, they set a franchise record for You're shutouts. Just sticking by this stick. <laughs> just stubbornly clinging to this stick. That was for old time's sake. That, that was a sub-500 Mariners take. Thanks to Fabulous Pelton Quotes for the heads up. A belated congrats are in order for the Pelton cast to WNBA fantasy champions between two birds co-managed by Neil Rhodes and Aubrey Robertson. All right. Lastly, this week, congrats to former Storm forward and Pelton cast favorite Alicia Clark on winning sixth player of the year for the Las Vegas Aces. Well, congrats. Nothing. Pelton cast favorite. On, on winning sixth player of the year with the aces. Come on. That's like, congrats to Puka Nakua for the most receptions. Like, wh- who are we celebrating right now? 
I mean, congrats, Puka Nakua. You transferred from UW and ended up at our most hated rival, but you're playing well there. Isn't that good? Come on. I mean, he didn't transfer from UW to the Rams. The Seahawks had every opportunity to draft Puka Nakua. Alicia Clark chose to leave the storm and sign with the Aces. Is that correct? I mean, she signed with Washington in between. Okay. Well, good for her. So. Well, congrats. Congrats on the award. The most bitter toast that we've I'm seen just, yet on the I, podcast. I, what, what are we selling? I, I, it's a little too friendly there. Okay. For a Seattle sports podcast. We still have to. I'm the only person who's carrying the water for the storm at this point. <laughs> carrying the, I, I'm the, I feel like I'm the only person cheering for the team to lose. To lose, yeah. All right, should we get into talking about this trip? Okay, yeah, let's do it. Is we were waiting to get in on Sunday in Detroit to the Seahawks Lions game. Some of the Lions fans were musing about the number of Seahawks fans who were there, which really was way less than Seahawks Colts, uh, the other road game I've attended. They were musing uh, as if there were a lot. Yeah, they they viewed it as a lot of Seahawks fans, and then they were talking out. Well, you know, it's the ultimate sports fans weekend to be able to go see the Huskies play. And then the Seahawks. And I was like, ah, actually, it's like, you know, it's it's a solid A minus behind the A that was the Huskies playing at Michigan and the Seahawks playing at the Colts two years ago. Wow. Which also was topped. Michigan State is, is also the kid brother to Michigan in terms of weekends for travel. Yep. 100 percent. Wow. And the Cubs weren't at home. So I didn't get to tag that on on the Friday as I did last year. Or in 2021. So, but most importantly, the outcomes for this weekend that you took were much better. So, what, what are we going to talk first food or are we going to talk sports first? Let's talk sports first, then we'll get to okay. Food. Okay. So, you're in East Lansing, Michigan. Boy, that was a long pause, but we got there. We got there. The no, 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 no. I thing. knew it. I knew it. I was building, okay. building up, building up the uh, uh, drama or whatever. We're recording over Zoom, so I have to have at least one awkward pause there. <laughs> You're in East Lansing, Michigan. Uh, did you tailgate for this? What is what is the environment like there? So, I mean, it was it was a little strange, obviously, given the events that are going on. Uh, Michigan State, it was reported on Monday, has notified Mel Tucker that they intend to fire him for cause uh, after the Title IX report that we discussed on the podcast or. Uh, complaint that we discussed on the podcast last weekend. So, you know, certainly Michigan State fans were still excited about the game. We wandered past, apparently there's like a traditional four o'clock shot, which it said like four o'clock specifically. There's a lot of games that start before four o'clock. I don't know what they do with the shot at that point, or you're playing the game at four o'clock, but they were rallying behind, you know, being 16 and a half point underdogs going into this game. And you know how Michigan State was still going to win. There wasn't like a lot of trash talk from Michigan State fans because there was only so much, so confident they could be going into this game. Uh, we did not tailgate, didn't know anyone who was and got there fairly late, maybe an hour and a half before the game. So after we parked on campus, we walked over to see the Breslin Center, home of Michigan State men's basketball. Uh, there's a Magic Johnson statue out front, uh, some plaques commer- commemorating their men's and women's basketball teams that have won the conference. And uh, it was interesting to me how few of those there are recently because Michigan State only is good in the month of March now under, under Tom Izzo. Uh, as we were walking over there, we, we did not have any beer. And two Utah fans, of all people, walk by us and unsolicited 
hand, hand us each founders all day IPA. Wow. Just out of Pac-12 solidarity. I really, well, you know, for now. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I I love that. Utah fans. This is a thing. Very this lost a, Utah fans. This is a Chris Smith complaint about people who wear jerseys to like to a Seahawks game. Somebody will show up week one. There's like a family all wearing Dolphins jerseys or whatever. Very and strange. it's just like, why are you here? But also, <laughs> why did you wear those? Like just to be like, hey, everybody, I'm not cheering for either of these teams. I just want to let you know publicly. I don't care about either of these teams who are playing. I cheer for a football team. They're not here. Full page ad. I don't cheer for these teams. Like the Utah fans, they're just like, because I'm assuming they were decked out in Utah gear. Or I mean, that's how I know they were Utah fans. It's not like they like, exactly. they, they didn't tell us, but I was aware previously. And we were just like passing each other as we were walking. It wasn't like we walked up to them and the had a beers? conversation. Yeah. So, I, I love it. It was a great moment. It worked out perfectly. Yeah. Quite a run in the Pac-12 for Utah fans. You've got you've got the conference championships beating USC, uh, the loss to UW, of course, the Byron Murphy pick, and then their fans handing you those beers walking yeah, by. That, that yeah. will go down in the Pac-12 Mount Rushmore for Utah, yeah. without question. Uh, so got into Spartan Stadium a little early. It's It feels a lot, I would say, like Husky Stadium pre-renovations. It was back to... For the first time in a while, peeing in a trough at a uh, oh, football nice. game. Yeah, you got a little trough action. Colorado is, has that same experience as well. That's is one of the other road games that I've taken, road trips I've taken in the Pac-12. Uh, all bleachers, no no backs to the bleachers. You're crammed in there pretty tight. Reminded me kind of of the Rose Bowl to that extent. Uh, the crowd was good. There was some empty seats, but the student section was just packed like well before game time like respect to the michigan state students on showing up early for this one and it felt like it could be go you know like kickoff it felt like it pretty could be a pretty good exciting atmosphere and then the game started is but do you think that's something so vis-a-vis washington about where the student body comes from partially it's just the timing of it right like they've been in school for over a month at michigan state i would assume correct but so there's just a timing month, but... issue for UW fans. Obviously, the just a, you're in actual Big Ten country. You you left Big Ten country to go to Big Ten country. You know, you're it... in historic Big Ten country. Well, what I posted on Instagram is that I was deep in Big Ten country, okay. yeah. and and someone objected to that that I was already in deep in Big Ten country when I left. And I would say that we're not deep in Big. We are in Big Ten country, but when you get to Michigan, you're deep in it. And then also, I, I again, this is literally knowing nothing about the institution, but I think I can make a broad statement about it. Oh, of course uh, you can. But the 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 students at Michigan State, it probably is a little bit more representative of the actual community in Michigan than UW is. And it seems plausible because of the fact that there was one billboard we saw at one point or something advertising that it, I forget what the exact number is, but like X percentage of Michigan State grads or employed in Michigan after graduation. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's interesting. Was that necessarily the goal? Like, is it a bad thing if you get employed in some other state? But that does seem to speak towards uh, 77% apparently are in state, according to whatever was the first thing that popped up on <laughs> the billboard. <laughs> 77% of students who go to Michigan State are from the state of Michigan, not employed within the state of Michigan. 
No, the, I mean the the billboard said that this is a different stat I'm seeing on Google. To be clear, okay. nobody could be employed by the state of Michigan because of the Mel Tucker contract, unfortunately. <laughs> um, uh, but any... I, I I do that. That's my expectation. The other thing, there was an ad for Michigan. I think it was Michigan State on the Peacock broadcast about what a great research institution it is, and it's just like, I we get it. Right, like you don't need to promote to us the people who are watching this game as Michigan State fans and UW fans about being a research institution. It's like a fucking competition in the Big Ten and schools like this to be the most research of all of the research institutions. And research literally means nothing. It is the most like what what are you researching? You could be researching anything. It is the most broad term that could possibly be used. It's just research institution. It's like great. That's look forward. really relevant information. Look forward to Jimmer Wade on this one. one what, 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 <laughs> there are what, many research institutions in the country. Sure it's all about who can out-research the most, who can be the most research of all the research mm -hmm. institutions. There are many football institutions in the country, too, and some of them are out-footballing others. Uh, one of the things that did stand out from Michigan State pregame is like they were getting ready to play their fight song, and they referred to it as the best fight song in the country. It's like, guys, guys, objectively speaking, is a neutral observer here. The best one is like right up the road in Ann Arbor. <laughs> like, that would be like. They're not going to admit that at Michigan State. But, but still, that would be like Washington State talking about how they have the greatest setting in college football. Or, or UW being like, we've got the best cheese <laughs> yeah, in exactly. college football. <laughs> like, that's overcompensating too far. The best, I literally have no idea what Michigan State's fight song is. A lot of people saying it. I I gotta give them credit. It was it was well, yeah. Seventy seven percent of the graduates are from Michigan. <laughs> they know it. A lot of people sang it. So, uh, anyways, then the game started and the vibe quickly began <laughs> to sour. <laughs> I feel like Michigan State. The my sense about the Michigan State crowd is it was a little bit like UW in probably the well in, in probably much of the Steve Sarkeesian era. Where it was like, we're expecting something to go wrong and we're ready for something to go wrong when it does. Which is funny because like Michigan State's success is not that far away. They they won a a New Year's Six bowl game two seasons ago. So, but th things have obviously turned rather dark since then, both on and off the field. Uh, by halftime... The crowd had thinned considerably. The student section, like large swaths of it, were completely empty. Uh, it, and by the end of the game, it was like largely Husky fans who were left in the building. Nice. It I reminded mean, the, me the game was over for so long. So long. Zero darkness was seen. <laughs> I felt like just a little t a twinge of darkness right before kickoff. So. <laughs> True. Like it was still nervousness, but but no actual darkness. Except, yeah. I mean, I guess like maybe when that fumble wasn't called or something, it's like, oh, this is gonna come back to haunt us. But but they they punted it and I was like, cool, yeah, game's over. <laughs> Michigan State was trying to play like the field position game under their interim head coach, <laughs> and and one of my strong texts is, you are not gonna win a field position game against this UW offense. Confidently I, could say that. I mean, so are we talking about the game in general right now? Yeah. It was interesting. I I think the Michigan State team, I, I don't know if they're better or worse than they were last year. UW dominated the game last year, but it was 
you controlled the game. Uh, they did not dominate. I think that it was early in the season. They hadn't quite figured out the offense yet. And they obviously had the offense the most figured out right now. This was a complete and utter dismantling of a team. Like, if you would have told me, not not knowing the logos, not knowing how great the fight song is or whatever, how many students from in-state went there, that they're a research institution, the most research of all institutions, if you would have told me that that was Tulsa, I would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. On the field, they, they were not a Power 5 school against UW. And I think you have to give UW a lot of credit for that. Like, obviously, the, the situation, Mel Tucker and the situation around Mel Tucker is not worth that many points, is not worth the... It, it just can't be. Exactly. The players are still trying to win. You know, it doesn't really ultimately matter, like, who the coach is who's making these decisions. The players are trying to execute the plays. The plays are basically the same. And it was such a complete and utter domination that... It was hard for me not to think that UW is possibly, possibly the best team in the country. Uh, in terms of FPI efficiency, based only on results from this season, UW is currently number two in the country. After? Oklahoma, who throttled Tulsa much worse than UW did the week before. Uh, do you care to guess what, which conference number three, four, and five in the country hail from? All from the Pac-12, of course. The Pacific 12 Conference, of course. Three of the top five in the country in FPI efficiency through three weeks are from the Pacific Northwest. It is. It's USC, Oregon, and Oregon State are the other three. Washington State, which ranks a strong 16th in the country in FPI efficiency, a distant last among the Northwest schools. I I think there is a good chance that UW could have their best team since. The best team of going as far back to Don James. I think there is a chance that this could be the best team that they have, and they still could not win the Pac-12. I think there's a good chance they play in a bowl game that is much worse than bowl games that they played in under Chris Peterson while having a team that is probably better. Again, it's only been three games. I was going to say the team's healthy, but the team is even that healthy. They're not that healthy. We'll talk more about that later. The secondary played in that game, they're still figuring it out, but if there is... If the defense is even to above average with where this offense is, they are such they are a clear, clear competitor for the Pac-12, and in any other season would comfortably win the Pac-12. And it's one of those things where you look at the schedule and it is just there's a a couple in a row where you're like that's okay, and then it is a fucking gauntlet week after week after week of games against teams that are just absolutely dominating so far. Again, the Huskies are playing those three other teams that are in the top five in FPI efficiency. I think in a four-week stretch, it's certainly in a very short period of time. Have you looked at the Seahawks stretch that starts in like oh, I'm November? By, we, 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 I okay. think we talked about it while you were not on the podcast. That is... <laughs> I guess there, there is some separation between Oregon and then the USC, Utah, Oregon State, Washington State stretch, but uh, still, still not great. I mean, this kind of leads me to my biggest takeaway from this game, which is just, I I agree with you that the success that UW is having this season will benefit them in future seasons. And that we don't need to obsess about what the roster looks like next year because 
this is college sports in 2023 and the roster is going to be volatile from season to season. But all that being said, Panic's coming back, Odunze coming back, McMillan coming back, Troy Fautano coming back, Breland Trice coming back, etc. ZTF coming back, so on and so forth. Like, we need to enjoy and cherish this season because it it might not ever get any better than this again. Yeah. And it's certainly going to be hard for it to be more fun than this offensively. The ease with which they move the ball. Like there was the possession where they get backed up on the one their own one-yard line. And it's just like, oh, cool. We're just going to max protect, let Penix drop back, and throw like a 50-yard bomb to Odunze that he's going to catch with a defender draped all over him. And it's not even going to be a big deal at all. It's kind of wild how how easily they had deep passes. I was thinking about you being there, just being like, well, okay. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Right? It was truly. That's kind of all you could do is just be like, damn, I guess that's what's happening today. My my friend Todd, who uh, graciously drove me to uh, Michigan and back, uh, went to go get a beer when the Huskies got pinned deep. And he was like, wait, how did they get the ball? How did they score that quickly? I think he came back after they had already scored a touchdown. and Or maybe, maybe they had already moved it to like the 30 and there was some sort of a stoppage in play. I was like, yeah, that's that's just what they do now. Yeah, it's great. No, it's 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 pretty incredible. I mean, I, again, they they were so good that you kind of have to ask yourself: Is Michigan State just truly awful? Which it seems pretty surprising. It, it would be very surprising to me if Michigan State was that bad. This is a I team think that it, I think it's plausible that their quarterback play could be that bad, and and Noah Kim was twelve thirty one like, for one hundred thirty six yards. It but doesn't matter. Yeah, the defense about the is different. Play. Yeah, the the Husky offense, if they really wanted to, obviously they you know they throttled down a little bit at various points. They probably could have scored a touchdown on basically every single possession in the game. I mean, uh, also like the the last possession of the half where, you know, I don't know how, how much time was left on the clock when they took it over, but just quickly marched down the field, scored the touchdown with seven seconds left to make it 35 nothing with getting the ball to start the second half. It, no, it was it was pretty wild. Like that that is a game that we are going to remember because of just playing a team like that and the complete domination of them. Yeah. Obviously, I mean, we'd probably remember it more if we weren't joining the Big Ten because it would be more unique. Because <laughs> yes. now, now we'll just play Michigan State semi-often. We'll travel there presumably every four years, more or less. Yeah, but it it is a situation that going into the Big Ten and the conversation. Look, they're not Ohio State, they're not Michigan, they're not Penn State. But I mean, I mean, one of the things is you know we had the podcast two years ago when I came back from Michigan and I talked about like the levels to this shit and the way that they were on such another level at Michigan is compared to UW. Let me tell you, I did not get that sense on Saturday about Michigan state. Yeah. I did not. Uh, you happen to see the worst Husky team of, but it wasn't even necessarily about the game. It was also about, as I mentioned, like if you go back and listen to that one, like they show the list of graduates and it's like Gerald Ford, and so on and so forth. And the fact that there's a hundred thousand people in the stadium and that all of them are sta- there early and standing and excited the entire game. And that, you know, it, it, it does mean more in the same way as the SEC at Michigan. It means a lot at Michigan state, but not more than at UW. Yeah. Okay. 
So well, yeah, I was fully prepared for another one in one weekend in 2021. Like the timing of it worked out because the you know the the frustrating disappointing game was on Saturday, and then the Seahawks came out and looked awesome against the Colts, and that was kind of the the lingering memory of the trip. So I was like very careful to like set my expectations low going into Seahawks Lions on Sunday because I wanted to make sure that it still was seen as a successful weekend thanks to UW. Whatever happened in Seahawks Lions, uh, let me tell you one thing about the Lions fans: they could not possibly have been more excited <laughs> for this game. And I definitely like back in the back of my mind had the thought like, Oh man, if the Seahawks ruined this for the lions fans, like they, uh, I mentioned the, the statue, the, the lions on Saturday unveiled a statue of Barry Sanders outside the stadium, which we passed as we entered. We know your feelings about statues. You know, I don't, I don't generally believe in them, but you know, uh, Barry Sanders also has like the postseason track record of the '95 Mariners. So it, it's, <laughs> yes. it, it's fitting. Did he play in a playoff game? He played in playoff games. He did not win. His teams did not win a playoff game. His career. <laughs> Obviously, not Barry Sanders' fault. To be clear, something that he has in common with the Mariners: <laughs> they're building statues <laughs> over players who never won a playoff game. Detroit. Uh, I I didn't this realize is, that... this is the team that thought they were going to win. Yes, they, they could not see anything bad happening. They honored him throughout the game. Kelvin Johnson, who apparently I think Bob Contota tweeted this and had a strained relationship with the organization, was featured several times, you know, had a video message for, for Barry Sanders. Peyton Manning, by the way, stole the show with his video message for Barry Sanders. Really? A very random combo, but Peyton Manning always funny. So he nailed it. He got the hammer, I think, on that. On that. Did he? I mean, Peyton Manning's kind of great. Yeah. So the start of the game, the energy in that building, I mean, I, even in the Seahawks heyday, I'm not sure I've seen as much excitement as there was in that building or heard a stadium is loud taking advantage of the dome. Like there's the same thing in terms of their taking pride in false starts uh, by that's a funny way to put it because the the term for the fans, their version of twelves is one pride. So mm-hmm. that's that's you know it's the one pride you know list of number of false starts and times delay of games and times teams have to take time out. So that opening drive, I mean, the 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 noise, the energy, all of it was off the charts, and the Seahawks calmly marched down and scored a touchdown, and the Lions very quickly come back and score a touchdown. And it feel, felt a lot at that point, like it was going to be a repeat of last year's game where the Lions scored 45 points and lost. It was a little more defensive than that. And obviously the crowd didn't stay that energized the entire time, but a truly remarkable performance by the Seahawks, I think to handle that environment and play the way they did. And my number one takeaway from that game, mm-hmm. God damn it. Pete Carroll did it. <laughs> In the second quarter, I was ready to fire Pete. He (laughs) comes out, takes a delay of game, or takes a timeout to avoid a delay of game on fourth and three, and then, you know, decides to, uh, was that when they kicked the field goal and missed? I I forget exactly what the sequence of it is, but don't go for it. The defense, his baby, is just getting picked apart by Jared Goff, who started 11 of 12 completing passes in this one. And it's like, 
what is it you do here, Pete Carroll? You're just in charge of the vibes. That's all you're bringing to the table because you're, you're not bringing defense. You're not bringing in-game decisions. But damned if the Seahawks didn't like eventually make enough plays defensively in a very Seahawksy way and show resilience and stay competitive. Now, it turns out that you've got to amend the can you win the game in the fourth quarter? Because now you have to add, can you win the game in overtime? Because they didn't win the game in the fourth quarter. They could have, didn't, but they sure did win the game in the overtime. Yeah. Wow. Pete Carroll did it. That's your take. <laughs> uh, so I, I think I think there are a couple things that Pete Carroll things that were different than maybe you would have s- peak bad era Pete Carroll, the near the end of the Russ era. And and we should that, be clear, more frustrating era Pete Carroll than probably actually bad Pete Carroll. But yes, he did a, th- a few things differently. And if you'll notice, I believe on the game-winning touchdown drive in overtime, there was one run on the entire drive. That sounds plausible. They passed the damn ball to get downfield. This wasn't a pound the rock, you know. There were there were two runs on that drive, two yards and a cloud of dust or whatever. Kenneth Walker wasn't running the ball particularly well in this game, and they moved away from the run relatively early. I mean, he only got to 17 carries. Like, I I don't know. I don't. I didn't see the situational stats for how much they ran the ball, but like, are they? They know, have moved up in terms of passing over expectations in the Ben Baldwin charts. They've, they've gotten in in the positive direction. Yeah, from week one to week two. So they threw the ball 41 times, rushed in the end 25, but that includes a handful of Geno Smith scrambles. They weren't just like, we're going to pound the rock against this team. They came out with a much better game plan than they had against the Rams. Which I kind of thought would, was not actually a bad idea coming into this game with the success that they had running in the games. Jake Curran had started at right tackle last season with Curran and Stone Forsyth starting at tackles against a pretty fearsome Detroit pass rush. And... Not only did the Seahawks pass the ball, they protected Geno Smith. He was awesome in the pocket, you know, stepping up, finding space, making plays with one one very notable exception, the one time he was sacked and and nearly nearly it felt like cost the team game the game in the moment, but all of that was terrific. Geno was awesome in this game. I mean, Geno played such an incredible game and it felt so different than last week where for me going into it, I was like you never know how much you're going to care. This is sort of this is near the Pelton Cast uh, uh, motto or whatever. What is what is it? Pelton Cast Golden Rule. The Pelton Cast Golden Rule that y- you don't know how you're going to react in a situation until you experience that situation. I, I guess it is the Pelton Cast Golden Rule, right? I was like, maybe I just don't care that much about the Seahawks. Like the Huskies won. I was like, the Huskies are so dominant. Maybe the most dominant that I've ever seen them in my entire life. Maybe I just don't care about the Seahawks. And we got to the second half of that game. I had to go to Mateo's football game, got a receiving touchdown. He got catch in the game. <laughs> the, 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 there are various quarterbacks. Uh, the court, quarterbacks in general were one for one with a touchdown uh, in his first grade football game. So that was pretty cool. But so I, I was there for the first half watching on my phone, just being like, what the hell is going on? Without watching the game, I'm like, the Seahawks score a touchdown, great. I was listening to that on the way in. They're just giving up touchdowns instantly, it felt like, coming back. I'm like getting notifications. Reek Woolen's hurt. DK Metcalf is hurt. 
And yeah. I'm just like, this is a train wreck. Seeing them walk off the field and the see we were in the corner on the side of both the Seahawks end zone end to which they had to walk to the locker room so it was like like walking in front of us basically woolen and metcalf as they went to the locker room but goddamn if the second half didn't start and i was not up screaming about various different things the turnover probably the pass interference or i'm sorry the intentional intentional grounding yes i was screaming at nobody at that point i was just like arguing with fake officials like (laughs) the when you get down into it, right, the Pelton Cast Golden Rule, when you get there, I was like, this is the team that I care about the most. There, It is not even comparable. Husky football, storm draft pick, Mariners in the playoffs. I just do not care at the level that I care about the Seahawks team. And being in that moment and excited for that game, it was unlike anything else. So... For me, it was like, okay, I, I actually do. Because re- I was like, maybe they'll just be bad. I'll be fine with that. I would not have been fine with that. I learned. <laughs> yes, again, Pelton Cass Golden Rule. I, how terrified were you that they were going to lose the game on the final drive of regulation? Oh, th- I mean, there was one completion where I was like, thank God they completed a pass over the middle. It was like a six-yard completion. I think Bobby made Bobby made the tackle. Yeah, and I was like very conservative after. You oh, know, I they... think they called it bad. I, th- I think they the play calling was not good on that drive. They, I think they could have scored a touchdown. If they, they had 12 have. and 11-yard completions, and then they let the clock run way down to 38 seconds, didn't take a timeout at that situation with three remaining, and then four-yard completion, incomplete, three-yard completion, kick a field goal on fourth and three there was some point where you start realizing okay this is not they're not gonna win this game here and i was like thank god that's not gonna happen it literally did not occur to me until they let the clock run down on when the seahawks didn't call a timeout before that i i just don't see the reason to not i guess if you're just so comfortable you're like because the lions would have been out of timeouts there's not a way that they could have gotten the ball back if they if they missed the field goal it's not like they could have gotten the ball back after that you just take a knee and it's over yes, they would they would have had one timeout but not enough to get the ball back so I, I didn't see how there was any downside to taking a timeout well the there. downside is then you convince them to go for it and then they try to score a touchdown i don't think there is any chance of them going for it there i suppose not based on the way they played it i i don't know that entire drive the possibility of overtime was not even anywhere in my mind i i've been watching too much of the quarterback series on netflix which i am obviously uh-huh. late to and i was thinking of patrick mahomes constantly going around to his teammates in late game situations t- telling them be ready to score here assuming that the defense is going to you know assuming that the defense is going to score because you just need to be prepared for that scenario that's what i was thinking is like could the seahawks manage to get a field goal to tie this game after the Lions scored the go-ahead touchdown. That was the I only thing I considered that entire time. I was pretty convinced that we were going to lose the game after the Lions came back. When when Gino got sacked, I was just like, oh yeah, they're going to lose. Like It's going to be really, really frustrating. We're going to go back and be like, we were up 10. The moment after the Trey Brown pick happened, the pick six happened, that was when I was the most stressed. I was very happy about <laughs> the pick six, but because I let myself start thinking, oh, we're actually going to win this game. Exactly. And I was like, that's the most dangerous fucked. scenario possible. The, the second you think to yourself that the team is going to win, that's how you know you're going to lose. And hope, so hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. I started thinking that after the pick six, I was like, holy shit, we're actually going to win this game. And I knew that we were not going to win the game because I thought that we were going to win the game. Ironically, I suppose. But 
I thought that we were going to get the ball first or something in overtime, get two first downs, punt, and then they would come down and hit a field goal. They were just it, almost every scenario outside of the scenario that played out seemed more likely than the actual scenario that happened. The Seahawks getting the ball and marching down and scoring a touchdown there did not even up to the point that they were at like in the red zone, inside the 10-yard line. I still thought we were going to kick a field goal. It wasn't until Tyler Lockett, until the ball hit the pylon, that I was oh, like, oh shit. It wasn't until the ball hit the pylon. It was in, I, I don't know how this played out on the broadcast. It wasn't until the referee said the game is over or the, you know, the, the call stands or whatever. I wasn't worried about it being a fumble because I could see that it wasn't. I was worried that he might have been down at the one or something. An interesting counterfactual if the Seahawks hadn't completed there on third and two at the Detroit six with the, whether they would have gone for it or not. I think they probably would have. I was thinking about that as well, because if you give them the ball back, it's a death sentence, you know, and and you're so close that a, a field goal just, I feel like your best case scenario there with the Lions going for every single fourth down is a tie. Right. Yeah. So, having to stop them on repeated fourth down. Although the Seahawks fourth down defense in this game was, was quite outstanding. A pair of Devin Witherspoon plays to one of them. You know, kind of getting tangled up with the receiver, but one other great play on fourth down that that was maybe the highlights of his day. I, the other thing I will tell you here is saying nothing about Detroit specifically, but just about the level of excitement of the fans and the the sheer volume of them relative to Seahawks fans. Although we had a a few Seahawks fans around us, my celebration in this game was as muted as it could possibly have been to the point that I think the fan Lions fans in front of us were making fun of my golf clapping. <laughs> I, I, I mean, that might be like, like a fucking Stanford fan over here. Narcissism. It's like, this is not how I act at, if I've had a Seahawks home game in that rare situation, because I've been to more Seahawks road games in the last three years now than Seahawks home games. But this is very much me being cognizant of being wildly outnumbered. Uh-huh. And just being careful. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that is a wise decision because I've seen many fights at Seahawks games yeah. from people who are not careful. And you just, you don't want to be sweaty and escorted out. Like that is just not, not a situation. Not that you would escalate any situation, but like the sweaty escorted out of the stands because you're fighting. That's, that's like, you've reached a real low in life. I also, you, have you ever attended a Seahawks or Huskies road game? Like ever? Yeah. I've been to Husky Road. Oh, games. that's right. UW at Oregon. Yes, of course. That one. <laughs> I think that's it. Yeah. Like some people enjoy kind of the back and forth with the other team's fans. That is not your boy. I want no part of it. I just want to be left alone and leave everyone else alone. Oh, no. It feels like conflict. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The number one thing to avoid in all of life. We are the the most opposite of the bear version of Italian Italian family. <laughs> so. I'm, for, I'm for clear communication. <laughs> and if you have, to, I'm I am so comfortable communicating something that is hard to communicate, but not conflict. Does that make sense? The difference. Yes, I feel like it wasn't until we were in the car headed back to Chicago, which was well after this game, because. Uh, the the post game traffic in Detroit is is real and it's spectacular. That I like really felt comfortable. Ironically, actually. Detroit of all places couldn't figure out car traffic. Yeah, uh, that I really felt comfortable celebrating 
oh my god i can't believe they actually won this game oh yeah no it, it was a it was definitely a i was riding high all day it was funny because it's the lions of They were excited was they were right to be excited. They just beaten the world champion Chiefs. They had such a good end to their last season. The like, statistical projection said they would be very good. Like all indications were that the Lions would be good. And I still think the Lions are a good team. I, that, yeah, that, look, you know, the fact that they lost this game isn't necessarily that big of a deal. Like the other thing about it being a very Pete Carroll game. The difference in yards per play, I think, ended up being like less than a yard per play at the end. But for large swaths of this game, there was like a 1.5 yard per play difference between the two teams. And the Seahawks won this game almost exclusively because of the fact that the Lions had officially three turnovers. One was the Amon Ra St. Brown fumble on the last play in the first half that was meaningless, but two legitimate turnovers and the Seahawks had none. That was the game. I mean, that's. That's what it's about. That's the entire defense. It's all about the ball. That is what the defense is based off of. You give up yardage and you hope to get turnovers. You you just assume if there are enough plays, at some point somebody's going to do something wrong. And I think there's probably I hadn't thought about this. That may have been more true. I don't know if are there less turnovers now than there used to be? There must be. There's fewer interceptions for sure. So I don't think fumbles have gone up enough to compensate for that. I, I think that might be one of the biggest flaws with the Pete Carroll. Just offenses are better than they used to be. And so having a defense that's based off of give the offense something, let them do ben something over and over and over again. Yeah. But by the way, the line on this, the total on this game, because I just happened to see this on the pro football reference page was 47. And I don't know. I don't, I'm not a gambler, but I would have smashed the over on that one. 47? 47. These teams Between combined the for. Seahawks and the Lions? These teams, I believe, combined for 93 points last season in their game. So. That is really. I mean, but the reason it wasn't a Pete Carroll game of late was the Lions didn't, as far as I know, I, have, I don't have the stats up. They didn't dominate time of possession. They did not. That is true because they were the team that scored quickly repeatedly in this game. The Seahawks won the tie of possession, although strictly because of the extra possession in OT. It's still, that's something that doesn't happen that often. Yes. I mean, so that means that in regulation, they were all, the Lions had 30 minutes and 48 seconds. They were almost exactly even in regulation. Yeah, they ran 62 plays. The Seahawks ran 68, and I think like eight of the nine of them, I think, were in overtime. So it was like 62 59. Yeah, it was almost precisely even as far as time of possession. Uh, no, I mean, it was, it was a monster victory and especially looking, like I mentioned the schedule that they have ahead of them, oh, it yeah. is, it, they need every win very, very badly. And, you know, last week's would have been really, really nice to be two and zero right now, but I, I think we'll talk about the Seahawks versus the Panthers or whatever later, but I do think this game has to give you a bit of a reframing from the previous week. We don't need every week to be an indictment of what the team is. You know, this doesn't have to be the Mariners earlier in the season, but like, <laughs> But I think you can understand why the Lions fans felt the way that they felt about the Lions, right? They'd just been the world champions. Yeah. They'd finished last season really well. On paper, the team looked good. The statistical projections were good. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's it's a very big victory. It is. Should we talk about pizza? Absolutely, we should. Finally. Because it's something we want to talk about. So, somehow, I had... It, it's interesting. This is my first trip to Chicago since the Bear. Like I, the last time I went was like May 2022. So it was right before the bear came out. And I expected it to be a much more Italian beef heavy trip. 
I did try a new <laughs> you location. You can control that. It's not like people are coming down the streets. <laughs> I, I thought people like the Utah fans would walk by and hand me Italian beans. <laughs> I did try Buona's, which is a new Italian. It's not a new Italian beef chain. It was new to me having previously done uh, Portillo's and and uh, Al's, Al's famous Al's beef. Al's I forget. Famous, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Al's was my choice of those two. Bona, what they introduced to me was in in addition to the option to have your Italian beef dunked or dipped, they offer the baptized option, which is like, let's just like let it marinate in those juices for a period of time until I know your feelings about wet bread. This is literally wet bread. Really soggy. Oh, that's that's what I want. So I liked that option. I mean, if you have it fresh. That's pretty soggy, though. It's a long time in there. I, I mean, I don't know how long it's actually spending in there. It was wetter, I think, than previous Italian beefs that I've had. It's also, speaking to my newfound familiarity with Italian beef, I don't think I had Giardinera at Portillo's or Al's Famous previously. And I, I you did said this no time. to the Giardinera? Do you, do you have to order it separately? I, I'm not sure. It was like an option here. Like, you had to add it on. Hmm. And okay. I did. Absolutely, you did. So it was quite delicious. Italian beef is good. But the pizza tour started, oddly, at T-Mobile Park on Wednesday. Wow, okay. With third Pelton brother, Zach Jabal, as uh, I arrived early for the matinee game, and Zach met me up on the 300 level, and we got Moto Pizza for the first time that I've had Moto, which they describe on their website, let me go back here, as a delightfully odd mix of Detroit, New York, Roman, and Filipino goodness. But I think it's most categorized, if you're going to categorize it, is a Detroit-style pizza. It's called Moto Pizza. Like, Oh, I never even put that together? Really? No, I never did. We know who it's after. You can, you can talk about all the other things, but it's called Moto Pizza. It's square. Yeah, I mean, and it's got, you know... But it doesn't actually have the sauce fully on the top. Some of no. these pies do. Uh, but not all of them do. So I got you the pepperoni. I had the kissed, which is pepperoni, spicy sausage, and hot and spicy honey, basically okay. hot honey. And uh, these are like not cheap, but it's $19. <laughs> You're trying to guilt me into not paying you for it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's fine. <laughs> you waited till the podcast to bring it up. I just want to note that like there was so there was a person in line in front of me who didn't really know what was going on. Like the rest of us were there because it was Moto Pizza. You're all nerds going over there. And she was like, is this really worth it? Worth waiting in line for? And the person behind me line and got in it. The person behind me was like, oh, yes, absolutely. It's 100 percent worth waiting for. Like as someone who had had previously gone to it. I, I think it definitely was. It was like a 10 to 15 minute wait for me. I think oftentimes at night games, if you you know are there at basically close to first pitch, it's probably a half hour easy. That might not be worth it to me. But I did think like for ballpark pizza, this was legitimately outstanding. Yeah, I I will accept that given that caveat. It's it's really hard to judge, though, because you, you shouldn't judge any restaurant based upon the version of that restaurant at the ballpark. So many people DM'd on Instagram after I posted this. How does it compare to the real version? And I had to point out that I have still not had Moto Pizza from the actual locations locations yet. I want to have Moto Pizza proper. Worth it is such a complicated thing to describe because food at a baseball game is expensive. It 
was not a yes. ton of food for nineteen dollars, though. No. I mean, it was enough. Like it was enough to tie me over. That was my full lunch. Was it was those, good though? Those two it, it was good. It just wouldn't. It doesn't like the ballpark version of it wasn't anything that I would be like, "Wow, this is incredible." I don't think I would necessarily wait in a thirty-minute line for that ballpark pizza, but I. I, actually I don't did know. Think you, I did think it was competitive with the Detroit style See, pizza. You I had. had it. You had it way fresher than I had. It. That is I true. I had it yes. like thirty minutes after you got it. Right. Sitting sitting underneath your seat for an extended period of time until you got there in the second inning. Uh, do you want to know a wild bit of information that I got today? I mean, yes, of course. I was driving down uh, Petrovitsky, whatever it turns into, towards Tequila. Roundtable Pizza Buffet. If you recall, you were never that much a part of this. A staple in Burien. Right? Oh, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I wasn't that much a part of it. Round, I, I don't off, like it as much as when the the Pizza Hut in downtown run at the lunch oh. buffet. That was top tier. Pizza buffets in general are incredible. Do you want to know what the Roundtable Pizza Buffet in, I think it's Tequila still, is what it costs no i mean yes i do want to know uh 13.99 i was that's a bargain that's not a bargain that is the cost that is more expensive than a full pizza but you're trying different things no the point of you could get two pizzas from domino's for 13.99 are you fucking kidding me my point was how expensive the pizza buffet is you know that you're eating cardboard pizza from round table it's bad but you get a lot of it and it's $5.99 and you might get the salad bar too. <laughs> That's the entire point of it. You think $13.99 is a steal for one person? Your whole brain is broken right now. Living in West Seattle has changed you, man. <laughs> the round well, table pizza buffet pizza. should be like $5.99 and you eat 12 slices. That is what it's about. Okay. Man, it is so expensive. That's two pizzas at Little Caesars, two pizzas at Domino's. It's fair. For $13.99, you could get like three or four slices from Pagliacci of good pizza. You could get I mean, three that, different that slices. That is, that I agree with, obviously, our sponsor, Pagliacci. I would much rather have that. Get Stay in your lane, round table pizza. I People must not be eating it. Okay. <laughs> I I would tell you that I thought that the Moto Pizza was competitive with the Detroit pizza that I ended up eating in Detroit. I, I will say. Okay. So I, I I felt much more positive about it than I think either you or Zach felt the ballpark version. So on Friday, uh, meeting my ESPN colleague Jamal Collier for lunch, we went oh, to Salerno's name dropping yeah, again. Salerno's Pizza. <laughs> which I thought of as tavern style. I'm now reading their website. Apparently, it is technically double dough style is what they specialize in. So it's a little thicker than the classic tavern style that has become more popular. Uh, certainly, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt has been posting a lot about his experiments with, with tavern style and trying various tavern style over the past year here. But so tavern style... Very, it's supposed to be like a cracker thin crust, uh, you know, kind of traditional cheese and toppings, and then it's cut not in 
you know, slices of a pie radiating out from the center, but in rectangles, but at the edge, you know, they get rounded. That makes sense to you. It's like if you're making line, cutting lines across it. And so the inside pieces are squares, but the outside pieces are not. And the outside pieces were terrific. Thumbs up to this. The other thing I discovered is that Jardinera is a topping option for Chicago pizzas in Chicago. Okay. And I enjoyed that. I had sausage and Jardinera, the mad Italian, I believe was the name of that one. So this is very solid, very solid. Sunday at the- You know who does tavern style pizzas? Who? Round table pizza. Oh, I guess I had never thought of that. That's interesting. Uh, Sunday at the recommendation of my buddy, Dan Feldman of the Dunked On Network, went to Buddy's Pizza in Detroit near Ford Field pregame and was kind of shocked that it wasn't more crowded than it was is, you know, a place that you could sit and have pizza and drink before the game. And uh, the one downside of tailgating on Eastern time zone is you just got to watch the pregame show. There's no other games on. Oh, terrible. Bad time zone. But we're able to just walk right in and immediately get a table. Uh, there we just had the, the it was double pepperoni. So there's pepperoni under the cheese. Okay. Then the layer of cheese, then cut pepperoni, okay. and also the sauce on the top in Detroit style. Buddies, I don't, I don't have not verified this claim, claims to have invented Detroit style pizza, the square pans, all corners, split slices, etc. And my big takeaway from this is I don't know how Detroit style pizza didn't sweep the country more quickly. I think it's a wow. really, it has a lot to offer, especially because ironically, Little Caesars and Domino's are both from Detroit. Well, I think, yeah, Domino's doesn't do a Detroit style pizza. And Little Caesars only added it recently. Like we weren't getting Detroit style pizza from Little Caesars as kids. No, I, I think people thought that the country was scared of these other styles of pizzas. They compared it with with the swarthy Italians. They thought that the country was not not ready for it, right? Wow. And they the pizza chains in general, they were they were coasting for a long time, right? They were just like circular pan, that's it. That's what you're getting. You're getting everything in triangles here, buddy. But I do think that that pizzas in general nationally the different individual location styles of pizzas have now become i think within the last decade i would say much more common in different parts of the country like 100%. there are multiple detroit style pizza locations in seattle now yeah and i would say like the you know the cheese that melts against the pan is also like you know because it's a corner slice again the best part of detroit style pizza so there is some similarity to windy city pie even though it's primarily a chicago style it has the the edges i think have some similarity to detroit style well their sister restaurant breezy is a, town is yeah. a little more ambiguously midwestern yes i would say but that's what the huskies are about to experience <laughs> ambiguously <laughs> midwestern <laughs> uh yeah it's even country right there Windy City is not like full on deep dish. So Monday I finished off this trip by having deep dish at Pequod's, which so previously I had had deep dish. I can't even remember whether it was at Giordano's or Luminati's, the two like leading chains, which is a statement on how nondescript that pizza was when I had it. Pequod's was very different. Apparently what they're known for is their butter crust 
uh, up against the the pan of the pizza in the deep dish. And this was this time I had pepperoni in Chardonnay as toppings. And this was probably the, ultimately the winner of the best pizza I had on the trip. Really? So Pequod's is number one to you in Chicago right now? Yeah. I want to eat. I'm really actually very hungry right now. And I want to <laughs> eat that pizza right this second. <laughs> That's a fair assessment. I, I just, to me, the ambiguously Midwest pizza is the number one. I mean, God, I do love New York pizza, though. I really like a thick crust, you know, it like it's almost I want it to be like you get a lot of bread in there and then the pizza toppings on top. That is really the best way to deliver pizza. I mean, pizza is great. First off, like yeah, pizza in New general, York style is great. Chicago style is great. Detroit really, style is great. Really coming out pro pizza here. Yeah. The pro pizza agenda. <laughs> but I think just, about all the pizzas, I really, really think that I love pizza, but and my best pizza experiences have definitely been in New York by far. It's not even close. I don't feel like I've had I've I've not had great pizza experiences in, in New York. I feel like the replacement level is super high, but I don't know if the highs are is high necessarily. So So Pequots is the winner of so far for your ne- ambiguous Nero Midwest winner. ambiguous Midwestern pizza search. Buddies and Salernos would totally eat again, hundred percent. But Pequod's, I think, was the best. And where does where does uh, Mo- Moto Pizza rank within there? Ballpark Moto Pizza again. Yeah. It's it's in that second tier. Okay. No. So, there you go. With that, is it finally time for your favorite segment? It's like the latest. It's come. Don't burn yourself. We got Mariners hot takes coming at you. I was so mad this weekend. So mad. I had all of these takes in my head. I was going to invoke Dennis Green, Jim E. Mora with a, they are who he thought they were, and uh, playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? I was so mad. I was indifferent by Sunday. Because on Friday and Saturday, I treated those games against the Dodgers like playoff games. I sat down and hung on every pitch. I thought to myself, I want this team to be back in the playoffs again because of how much fun it was to watch October baseball last year. You remember the game against against the Astros that went 19 innings or whatever, the playoff games against the Blue Jays, the comeback. Every game mattering so much, you can't miss an inning. Then I got some perspective because what I was looking for was right in front of my face the whole time. The Mariners are who we thought they were a team that could compete for a wild card or the AL West and the whole season, a slog through April, May, June, July, August, half of September, comes down to a 10-game gauntlet against the class of the AL West with one division title and most likely one wild card slot on the line between three teams. And I cannot wait to watch this baseball. The weather is getting colder. The nights are getting longer, and this is why we watch for so long. To hang on every pitch, every at-bat, every extra inning, and bullpen decision that will last for longer than a wild card round or a division series. We get a week and a half of some of the most intense baseball we'll have seen since 1995. 
that we don't even need to think about what's after just each and every moment because playoffs, you kidding me? I just want to win the next game. Oh, love it. Uh, the Mariners did treat the series against the Dodgers like ALCS playoff games, certainly because they, they lost all of them. But now, fresh off back-to-back wins against the Oakland A's with one last game left against the A's, 11-1 on the season. And, you know, you may say, oh, sure, what does that mean against a team that is now 46-105 on the season? But the A's did take two did take two or three from Houston just last week. So these are not games to be taken for granted or taken lightly. And now after the Astros lose the first two of their series in Baltimore with one left, it is Astros 84 and 68, Rangers 83 and 68, Mariners 83 and 68, all three teams in the AL West tied in the loss column with 12 days left in the season. This is it, 11 days. I, I genuinely know. mean this take. Like, I am so excited to watch these games. I'm a little stressed about it. But every single game is going... It's not like there's going to be one game where you're like, well, that one didn't matter or whatever. Every single game is going to matter so much. And it's different than it was last year. The Mariners had... They clinched a little bit later, but they'd more or less clinched for quite a while. They were on the verge of... like As you said on past podcasts, we could do the math in the number of games they had left against the A's and the Angels at that point. There's no magic number that we're talking about at this point. This is like, you just have to go out there and win these games against these fucking teams. And ultimately, like what matters, what they do against other teams also matters in the opposite series. But the Mariners have this opportunity. They are playing It is all teams. in front of them. And it, it's kind of an incredible opportunity in this time period when it is like this is freaking baseball weather out there you know baseball can be hot or whatever but like monday night it was when i really felt i was out in hobart or whatever johnny laser field in hobart for some fall baseball and it was crisp it was cold in the air there was a crescent moon it was clear i was like we are so back right now you don't love fall like i love fall because you're dead on the inside but it was it was fall. There was baseball happening. The Mariners are about to go on this stretch. We are back, baby. So Fangraphs gives them now 30% chances of winning the AL West, only slightly better than chances of that than winning the wild of winning the wild card. Partially because like playing all these games against the other AL West teams, you know, either they win them and win the division or they lose them and fall out of it. Like the middle ground scenario is relatively smaller than it probably should be at this point. The Rangers are way more likely to win the wild card, but way less likely to win the division. An interesting twist. Astros still most likely to make the playoffs by far, still even ahead of Toronto. But uh, this series they're having against the Orioles kind of reminds me of the Mariners playing against the Orioles and the Dodgers and the Rays. Like the ALS teams are all, they are a bit behind. It's about, in baseball, it's about just getting in because you have no idea what's going to happen in a playoff series. But Correct. these three teams are, they are sub the real class of the AL and definitely the NL. You know, you if you were to look at it power rankings wise, it's kind of like Rays, Orioles, maybe I, Blue Jays have been playing pretty well, Braves, Dodgers, and then the Mariners, the Mariners, the Rangers, and the Astros are definitely behind them. This is not an Astros team like we've seen in the past. This isn't an unstoppable team. I don't know that I put the Blue Jays that high. Yes, they've won a lot of games lately. They 
their run differential of plus 66 ranks. Let's see here. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12th in baseball. Okay. Behind, among other teams, the Minnesota Twins, the Phillies, the Padres. The Padres have won six in a row, huh? A little too late on that one. <laughs> a little too late on that one. But the Dodgers and the Rays, yes, 100%. That point one playoff odds still hanging you're telling, on. You're telling hey, me there's Blake, a Blake Snell is dealing right now. Blake Zilla. All right, let's get to the roundup, starting with the Sounders, who fell behind one nothing in the 15th minute Saturday at FC Dallas, but managed to equalize in the 57th minute through Alex Rodan and held on for their third draw in a four-match undefeated streak. Not a lot, a lot of shots on goal for either side with just 1.2 combined expected goals, but the Sounders doubled Dallas's total, so actually a pretty solid performance. The best news of this one is that Christian Rodan made his first appearance since July 15th is reserve. Great to see him cleared coming back from that second concussion of the season. The Sounders did finally drop to third in the West with LAFC's victory and now sit fourth with 1.45 points per match behind fourth place Vancouver, just ahead of Houston and Salt Lake with 1.43 points per match piece, which is why they could really use full points Wednesday at altitude against the Colorado Rapids, a team that has managed just 22 points from 27 matches, worst in the West, although still pretty competitive at home with a 2-4-7 and seven record, uh, have drawn the, the majority of their home games. Well, tougher going for O.L. Reign, who suffered a 2-0 loss Saturday at Portland. First half goals by Hina Seguita and Morgan Weaver did the Reign in. Reign had just three shots on goal, while the Thorns had eight. Probably the highlight of this game from the Reign perspective, Megan Rapino getting a standing ovation when she was subbed off in the 84th minute of what might be her final visit to Portland, where she, of course, played her college soccer at the University of Portland. Rapino's postgame quote via Sounder at Heart, I've been trying to impress people in Portland since I was 18, so you know to play college here and have so many amazing memories, even the rivalry, these are always the very best games. Even when you're on the losing end like tonight, this really sucks, but it's always really special playing here. A packed crowd, I don't think it was like all for me, but another meaningful game in a city that I love so much that has meant so much to me and such an important soccer city in our sport as well. I have so much love and respect for the fans here and how they show up for their teams, and I have a lot of good friends on the other team. Uh, Rain now fifth in the NWSL standings as they take this weekend off for the international break. Utah men's soccer managed Hello. a 1-1 draw Thursday at number one Stanford with okay. Chris Myers answering Stanford's initial goal barely three minutes later. Now that deserves a wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> then one one nothing at Cal to complete the go. road trip to the Bay Area. Back in the rankings at number 20 overall that, men's soccer. That Megan Rapino quote was kind of like the toast for Alicia Clark of quotes. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, Huskies, a non-conference weekend, they'll play at Seattle and host number five, Portland. So a wow, okay. another showdown there. The Pilots men's soccer doing quite well this season. I wasn't aware the city of Portland likes soccer. <laughs> yeah, news to you. All right, let's talk about the Husky football upcoming game. Or we'll start with the news. Uh, the bad news of last week amidst the the high of winning big at Michigan State. Starting center Mateo Mele and quarterback Devon Banks both underwent season-ending surgeries. 
Redshirt freshman Parker Brailsford, the freshman of the week, slid over to center from guard to replace Mele. Well, Elijah Jackson and Thaddeus Dixon got most of the work at cornerback opposite Jabbar Muhammad. Depth definitely getting thin there for the Huskies, a spot where they had a lot of injuries last season. Uh, but, you know, Jackson had one, I think, one pass interference call, but played a better game. Dixon had a really big third down breakup that looked a lot like what Davon Banks had done previously when he was healthy. Uh, for this week, Asa Turner, doubtful to play versus Cal, but fellow safety Cam Fabiculanin is expected back. The other kind of depth chart news from the Michigan State game. True freshman running back Tybo Rogers, who missed time due, during training camp due to team suspension, got his first playing time of the season and carried 15 times for a team-high 74 yards as part of the best rushing attack of the year. Dylan Johnson had a 45-yard rush and averaged 8.9 yards per carry. Well, Richard Newton also got his first carries of the season. That was cool. Game, yeah. Had 29 yards on four carries. Uh, the run game definitely pick, picked it up a little bit there. Uh, Tybo was playing so well. I thought Billy Blanks was back. Uh, a monster performance by Tybo Rogers. Like, <laughs> Sitting on that since Saturday. <laughs> what? The, the Tybo joke? I thought we were all thinking it. Uh, I had never for one second made that connection, but that, that performance by the running backs in general, it goes to show me that the, the running, the run game in the first two games, I don't think it was emblematic of what it's going to look like for the rest of the season. I think just have to figure out the rotation a little bit. It's one of those things where at almost every position they were returning deep starters and running back was the only position they hadn't quite figured out the rotation. And I feel like they do. I think Sam Adams sadly may not be part of that rotation, but if Tybo Rogers is going to be the one, if he's going to be the explosive player back there, then that's excellent. I don't know if he falls entirely out of it. I think it was Daniel Ngata who I don't know if he got any carries on Saturday. So he was kind of the, the one who uh, did not benefit from Tybo Rogers and Richard Newton getting a chance. I, I think the other thing is you you mentioned this in terms of like if you had taken off the jerseys, this felt more like the Tulsa game, you know, the game against the lowly non-power five uh, non-conference opponent. Like the Huskies dominated the line of scrimmage at this game on both sides in a way that they did not in either of the first two games. And that was, you know, kind of really exciting and encouraging to see. Uh, so let's talk about this week's opponent, Cal, is the Huskies start Pac-12 play. Huskies 21-point favorites in this one. Cal is 2-1 and one with wins over North Texas and Idaho, coming back from a 17-0 deficit to beat the Vandals 31-17 last Saturday, but lost 14-10 at home to Auburn in their only real non-conference test. It's been a run-heavy attack for Cal under Jake Spavital, who returned as offensive coordinator after spending the 2016 season in that role before becoming the offensive coordinator at West Virginia and then spending the last four years as the head coach at Texas State. The Bears rank sixth nationally with 242.7 rushing yards per game, but are averaging just 198.7 passing yards per game, which Michael Penix Jr. calls a good quarter. <sighs> TCU transfer Sam Jackson, the fifth one, the QB battle, has started all three games, but completed just 54% of his attempts for 5.0 yards per attempt. Uh, Jackson does bring a rushing threat. He had nine carries for 41 yards and a touchdown on Saturday. NC State transfer Ben Finley replaced Jackson due to injury against North Texas and threw for more yards in that game, went 24 of 34 for 289 yards than Jackson has in two plus games. Ah, 
Sam Jackson's much better at getting these motherfucking snakes off this motherfucking plane, though. <laughs> 100 percent uh Jaden ott leads a trio of running backs with at least 150 yards so far which contrasts with the huskies who have no running back with 90 <laughs> yards yet this season uh despite not playing against idaho due to an injury that shouldn't sideline him against uw ott ran all over north texas for 190 yards and two touchdowns uh, but had less success against auburn with 20 carries for 78 yards he had 897 yards eight touchdowns as a true freshman last year their leading receiver is Jeremiah Hunter, who has 147 yards and two touchdowns after nearly getting 1,000 yards in 2022. Cal defense remains stout as ever under Justin Wilcox. They're 17th in FBI efficiency after finishing a disappointing 56th last year, have forced 10 turnovers through three games. And while the schedule was obviously a factor in that, they held Michigan State transfer Peyton Thorne to 94 yards and 14 attempts in the Auburn game, while forcing four turnovers. Wow. Cal managed to slow the Huskies in the first three quarters of their 28-21 loss last year in Berkeley. Bears had a 7-6 lead at one point, where even 14-14 heading into the fourth. But UW scored touchdowns on three consecutive drives in the late third and fourth. I kind of don't even remember this. that game. I, I do. I remember it. I went and I don't know what the burger was, but I went and got a burger from Little Woody's and was watching the first half of this at Beer Star and being frustrated with UW's offense. And like it... I think it felt worse in the moment than it really was going back and looking at the stats from Michael Penix Jr. But it did take, you know, they they did take away the big plays that have been the signature of the Penix, Ryan Grubb, Kalen DeBoer era Huskies. Do we sort of kind of just like grind it out? I think yeah, I kind of remember that. A lot that. of long drives. Uh, they had a couple of opportunities. They had multiple drives down one touchdown late in the game, but uh, could not come up with the tying touchdown. I, you know, I think if there's anybody who is going to slow down this UW offense, I think it's Justin Wilcox uh, of anybody who they'll face. So wouldn't be surprised to see them be a little bit less explosive than they were. You know, I, I would be shocked if this is a situation that they end up at the one yard line and just casually pick up 40 yards. Uh, so, They'll probably have to work for it a little bit more, you know. Similar to you saw like Pelichek against the against the Dolphins last week. Eventually, they got there. They got their yardage. They got their points eventually, but they had to work a lot harder for it than they did against other opponents. And I think that's how this one is going to look. Ultimately, UW's just a better team, and they're playing the game at home. They're a better team. The offense is better than Cal's defense is. And I think UW's defense is good enough. You know, you talk about these stats. Oh, it's, it's better than Cal's offense, yes. Cal should not score many points in this game. When you talk about these stats early in the season, when ultimately, like, yes, they probably still will be a run-heavy team. They, they've played against Idaho and North Texas. Like, there's just not enough of a body of work to even necessarily understand exactly what this is going to look like. And they haven't but, been the but they also they've the, had to pass. the pass offense also played against North Texas and Idaho. And again, other than when Finley was in there, they have not been successful passing the ball. So I, I don't think that's super encouraging for them going against this UW defense, whose one weakness is probably the, the corner opposite Jabbar Muhammad. The thing that we need to be doing is looking at the weather forecast, though, because the 7.30 start against Cal is not something that I like to see. Better make sure there's no wind in the forecast and no lightning. Yeah, the, the lightning is the real concern here. Uh, I don't. I've already had one late night this week. I don't. I don't need a second. Saturday's looking pretty good. Sixty-seven degrees, mostly cloudy. 
you know, we'll need the hoodie for this one, certainly, but uh, that should be comfortable. Okay. All right. It's definitely, this is the first fall football game of the year. Oh, yeah. Is it usually is? Chances, percentage chance, 76 on Friday. So we'll see if that forecast changes at all. Uh, percentage chances of victory, obviously not. We're, we're not have to worry about getting sunburned in the 730 start. I think it's like an 80% chance of victory. That low? Eight, I don't know, 85? FBI I, I, has 84%, and I, I feel like that's underselling it. I, I, think I have 90. a healthy amount of fear of Cal. And... Of Cal in general as a program, also the first Pac-12 game. It's a 7.30 start. This is the last year of Pac-12 after dark, at least UW's participation in Pac-12 after dark. You just never know. I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. You, you have to have a little, some healthy skepticism. I mean, this would probably be the third time out of four weeks that I would definitely advise taking the points against the Huskies, but I've been way wrong in the first two weeks. Yes. <laughs> so maybe not. I'm at 90%. So, all right. All right. The Seahawks heading home also to take on the Carolina Panthers, who come in at 0 and 2. And big news, I think, likely the, the likely return of Jamal Adams, who could play for the first time since week one in 2022. Wow. And look, I know there's a lot of skepticism about Jamal Adams' value. I share it to a degree, although certainly not to the extent that some Seahawks fans do. But also, like, what what exactly are you worried about Jamal Adams messing up here on a defense that's 26th in opponent EPA, 30th in dropback EPA thus far? Are people worried about him messing something up? I think people are people are always like, oh, the Seahawks are better off without Jamal Adams. I definitely do not. Th- think the Seahawks are better off without Jamal Adams. I strongly do not feel that. I think what's going to be really interesting as we talked about with Ben Baldwin in the season preview is how do they use Julian Love once Adams returns? I mean, maybe they split some time in this first week that Adams is back. But one thing we saw with Devin Witherspoon, well, obviously he wasn't coming off nearly as serious an injury, but wasn't as experienced is they just threw him in the deep end right away. I, I expected he would play nickel, you know, to start. Instead, or maybe well, the the requel on injury as well. Yeah, but they, he was starting at left corner before that. Uh, or maybe they would play him at left corner in base defense and then move him inside as part of nickel defenses and put Trey Brown on the field that way. Instead, Witherspoon just, I think he played every snap in the game. So Did he? I, I don't I mean, remember him coming out. They, they definitely, I, I loved how they approached it. They drafted him with the fifth pick in the draft and they were like, we're going to play him. Yeah. They didn't spend the fifth pick of the draft on a player to not play them in their rookie season. So and I appreciate that. That's the way they approached it, to be honest. There were, there were a couple of tough moments, a, a pass interference on him that Pete Carroll disputed, but you know, he also came up with some really big plays in this one. I mean, it's interesting how they'll handle it because then Trey Brown comes in and has a crucial sack in this game, uh, the the first sack of this game, and then the pick six. So, you know, he's someone who merits being on the field. And now, you know, I think Julian Love in nickel or dime packages is a consideration depending on how much he's playing at safety. You still have Kobe Bryant. You have... Artie Burns, who uh, was 
signed to the active is going to be signed to the active roster. I don't know if that transaction is official yet, but it gives the Seahawks a little more depth at cornerback with Reek Woolen dealing with that injury that that forced him to miss the final two and a half quarters of this game. So a lot of moving parts on defense, but a lot more parts than they had a couple of weeks ago back in week one. Devin Witherspoon did play 100% of snaps. Wow, I love that. No, I'm so hyped on this. Devin Witherspoon, that that shows me that they think Devin Witherspoon, I'm like they obviously did go into the draft, but from what they've seen from him so far, actually being on the team, they still have that faith in him. You know who else played 100% of snaps, which is maybe who's, a little more troubling long-term? Who's that? Bobby Wagner. I mean... Like Pete Carroll yeah. said after week one, we need to get a snap count down. I think he played like 90, 90% of snaps in week one. And then instead, it was just like, oh, no, actually, he's going to go all the way up to 100% with Devin Bush missing. Yeah, with, when Devin game. Bush is out. Yeah. I mean, th- I guess he did, he did play time. every snap in week one as well. At some point, you just get down to it where it's like, he's Bobby Wagner. Like, if Bobby, if he, so much more than anyone else. If he's feeling good and wants to be on the field, that every single drive mattered in both of those games. There wasn't a situation where they're like, this is not where we could take a drive off. Throttle down a little bit here. I mean, the hope is that this does happen against Carolina now. Yeah. By the way, this this reminds me, you know, you mentioned the Huskies throttling down and, and used that phrase a couple of times. Like they were sub- substituting substantially even in the first half of that Michigan State game on defense. Uh, maybe not as much at the receiver position, but you know they they have really gotten a lot of guys work in the first few weeks of the season, which is encouraging. Yes, no, I I feel like that's kind of the the new thing with this Husky defense is how many different players are playing. All right, but let's get back I mean, to the Seahawks and talk about the uh, Panthers. Who Man, scored... I'm hyped on Devin. Devin Witherspoon's going to make a play in this game. Okay. Going up against the number one pick of this year's draft in Bryce Young, who has led the Panthers to 27 total points in two games, which ranks 30th in the NFL. I mean, it's interesting because like, this is not the empty cupboard situation that a lot of number one picks come into. The Panthers finished seven and 10 last year. They were six and six and six under interim coach Steve Wilkes, including a 32-24 win in Seattle in week 14 with Sam Darnold as quarterback. And yet... Yeah, 0-4 against the NFC South. And yet Young is number 28, both in overall EPA and drop back. Or the the Panthers offense, I should say, is number 28, both overall and in terms of drop back EPA. Young rates a little better in terms of completion percentage over expected, which has been fairly average. But uh, he's averaging a league low 7.1 yards per completion. Intended air yards haven't been that low, but haven't been able to hit the big plays. Just one completion in two games of more than 15 yards. Yikes. Okay. Newcomer Adam Thielen has been the most reliable target thus far with nine catches for 66 yards, including seven on Monday night against the Saints. And uh, Frank Reich said Tuesday he wants to get LaVisca Chenault Jr. more involved. Chenault has just two targets through the first two games. Actually has more rushing attempts so far with three of those. I'd say the biggest surprise to me is that the, t- the run game has been ineffective after staying fairly strong last season following the Christian McCaffrey trade. They were eighth overall in rush EPA last year, 12th without McCaffrey. They are 27th so far 
They're fifth in success rate, so a lot of that is three fumbles, two of them lost. But new starter Miles Sanders is averaging just 3.6 yards per carry. Well, Chuba Hubbard, who averaged 4.9 yards per carry last year, is up to 6.9 on his 11 carries this season. Yeah, I think this is one of those things you mentioned that he's not, Bryce Young is not coming into an empty cupboard situation like most of them on picks. This is a completely different Panthers team. It's really. true. And part of what they had to pay to get you know, Bryce Young with the number one pick was DJ Moore, who was a really important part of their receiving game. So I, I just don't really think it's necessarily comparable to... I This is still a rebuilding team. They obviously signed Adam Thielen to have veteran presence at receiver, but th- this is a rebuild season, whether they realize it or not. And Br- Bryce Young... I was only able to watch a couple of possessions in that game. There was at least one or two balls that he threw where I was like, wow, that is an awful throw. And then ultimately it was kind of a lot of underneath stuff, dumping plays off, you know, getting the ball to Adam Thielen a lot and definitely trying to get the ball to Adam Thielen a lot. This we've played a couple of quarterbacks who are Seahawk killer type quarterbacks in back-to-back weeks in Stafford and Goff. Bryce Young, I do not think is that player. I mean, the Seahawks have historically feasted on rookie quarterbacks. I think it's, you know, that's the inverse of those veteran quarterbacks who sit and pick them apart. Uh, Young, his sacks, also a big issue. He's been sacked six times through three through two games already. So it would be nice to see the pass rush really, you know, get going in this one after not making a lot of impact against Jared Goff in the first two and a half quarters, maybe three quarters. I forget when it was, the, I guess it was in the fourth when Trey Brown had the first sack. And then they started to get to him a little bit. He did end up with I'm oh, sorry. Unfortunately, one time Gerald Taylor got to Jared Goff, but Jared Goff had handed the football. <laughs> he got there. It really was a truly shocking play. <laughs> Cause like the fact that he celebrated, like it wasn't a dirty play at all. He said no idea. Fooled, which it's kind of surprising. Like I'd never seen it before, but it's kind of surprising it doesn't happen more often. The Uchenna Nuosu doing the crying <laughs> at the Lions after. It was a tense game. It oh, really was. I feel like this could be a fun rivalry. It's, it is kind of funny. The one thing, like they mentioned one time during the game that like Seahawks fans had funded uh, a, a flag football league that the Lions started uh, this season. Yeah, no, we were donations. Lions fans. The last time that the Seahawks played a regular season game, or that the Lions played a regular season game before this year. We were Lions fans. Lifelong that Lions moment. fans. But now so it, it feels like this could be a real rivalry. From that crew of very deep hate. Uh, I mean, just, the other piece... They, I, mean, I mean, you know what? The Seahawks and Lions are just on each other's corner right now. A little bit. A little bit, just with less forced downs. <laughs> I, not necessarily from that part of it, but in terms of teams that, you know, are... I don't know if, you know, I necessarily sound to say young, but like had surprising seasons in 2022 and added a shit ton of draft picks early in the 2023 draft to go with that. Much better offenses than one of those teams used a higher pick on the running back than the other did. Yes. I mean, the the other piece is that it could be a huge deal as far as playoffs as well. I mean, the reason they obviously made the playoffs last year is because of that victory in Detroit. So it was a big win. This one against Carolina, though, I I just don't. It's a little bit well, too early for Bryce Young. We still got to talk about the Panthers' defense, okay. which I was kind of surprised. It's only 16th dead average in overall EPA per play, number 10 against dropbacks, 
uh, number 28 against the rush because it feels like they've kept them in games. Uh, they they obviously got run over by Bijan Robinson in week one and then really contained Derek Carr, who went 21 of 36 for 228 yards. But Taysom Hill gashed them for 75 yards on nine carries. Seahawks have been there. Uh, Shaq Thompson suffered a fibula fracture on Monday night, underwent surgery. It sounds like it's likely to be season ending. People who know are very high on the Panthers. Other off-ball linebacker, Frankie Luvu, who had seven sacks last year, has 2.5 through the first two games. Wow. Edge Brian Burns also has a pair of sacks. Is And the Panthers are third best in the NFL overall with sacks on 13% of opponent dropbacks. I mean, that defense last year was good. Yeah. But between them and the run game last year, it's it just the scoring points is the part that I think is going to be difficult. And we'll see where the Seahawks offense is at against a team like this. I think it's a little bit of uh, we're kind of the Panthers is not necessarily a barometer game. We're feeling out how much of it is the Rams are better than we thought they were. And I think that Rams team, I mean, even the Niners game, like everything that happened last weekend kind of pointed toward the Seahawks not being as bad as we thought they were. Certainly Puka Nakua appears to be. For oh real, my god! Not just taking advantage of the Seahawks defense. It is shocking how good Pukunuku is. I mean, historic first two games in the NFL. Pukunuku, who knows? When it it feels real too. It's one of those things where he's just open all the time, and he's doing this without the attention of Cooper Cup on the other side. So it'll be very fascinating when they put the two of those guys together. Frankly, he has been what we thought Jack. Uh, Jackson Smith and Jigba would be in the NFL thus far. And, and thus far, the Seahawks have not really figured out how to unlock Smith and Jigba. A lot of short passes to him thus far. Although I think there was one big third down completion that he conversion that he had. He'll get there. I mean, there's still so many just with the other receivers on the team. Like there's still so much attention that's going to go to, we, again, if we talked on this a lot, we get so excited about rookies, but like DK Metcalf is going to get a lot of passes. Tyler Lockett's going to get a lot of passes. I mean, look, we talked about Geno. DK had an awesome game on Sunday. Tyler Lockett had an awesome game on Sunday. Like they both gave Huge him a back lot of, both of them. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, after week one, I was making the case that the offense was probably fine and it was just third downs. And I feel like what happened on Sunday validated that, that position. And v- validated very quickly, right from the opening drive as they marched down the field. So, but yeah, for this one, it feels like unless the Seahawks have a Rams second half style offensive, you know, I don't slow down, let's say it will be hard for the game. 12 yards. What, what is the other word? You didn't want to say meltdown because. I, yeah. Well, meltdown sounded too hot. They, they need to be colder. The term. Oh, we, were, we were pretty hot that day. <laughs> is that referring to the temperature or your anger? Yeah. At both. I've let it go. Percentage chances of victory? 60, 70, 68. <laughs> we are 70%. This is a game they should win. And, you know, it, it would be a bit of a, a concern with the schedule on the back half. Uh, if they didn't win this one, having already dropped one to the Rams, but it certainly wouldn't be stranger things have happened. They went 0 four against the NFC South last year. It, it's one of those things. They're five and a half point favorites. And I wouldn't be shocked if the Seahawks won the game by 20 plus points. Yeah. 
but the Panthers stayed obviously very close with the Saints, who I think are maybe good. I'm I'm still a little bit less convinced that the Saints are good, but I mean the other thing about this one is I feel like it's got a chance to really, you know, what happens early could cause wide deviations late. Because if the Panthers are in situations where they need to become one-dimensional and throw the ball on every down, it could get ugly. Yes, I agree. And on the other hand, you know, if the Seahawks are leading and can take the pass Panthers pass rush out of it, then that could really work. There. The other thing I didn't say about the the game plan on Sunday, like I think we were wrong that they didn't actually use any play action in week one. I think that was a bad stat that I, I found in the, in the moment, but they sure corrected that one. It felt like they made the entire offense out of play action against the lions. And guess what? Play action is great. Yeah. So keep it up, Shane Waldron. Wow. How different these weeks are last week. I gave a take about how much I hated Shane Waldron. It was personal. <laughs> And here we are a week later, happy with the Seahawks. Life in comes the NFL, at you fast. Every game can be an indictment on a team, though, in the NFL. There's not that many of them. It's not baseball. I, I agree that is, even though it is not correct, it is more sensible and more correct to do so in the NFL. Ten times more so, because there's one-tenth as many games. Yeah. On that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks. I feel like I'm the tired one. I'm so tired. I'm pretty tired. I'm not yawning this much. I just like it's kind of cold down here now. Yeah, it's that season. Break out my heater. Spiders are everywhere. I don't know if you have spiders all over the place. Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm a giant spiders. Is socks feasting. Do socks no. eat spiders. No. You might try sometimes, but not really. Maybe every <laughs> once in a while. Taste. Have a little taste of a spider. Just a little spider as a treat. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye.